Thank you. Good morning. I received a piece of mail this Wednesday here at the office, and it was intriguing because on the envelope, there was very little information which caught my attention, but there was something that I'd never read before. It said on the, it was like a stamp, and it said, professional courtesy voucher enclosed. So I, I wasn't quite sure what that, that is, and opened the envelope to find a beautiful brochure, very expensively crafted brochure. And on the front of that brochure was one large word that said, Aftermath. Aftermath. And at the bottom, in crisp white words, very distinct, were these words, Specialists in Crime Scene and Tragedy Cleanup. So I realized then that my voucher, which was good for $500, requires a tragedy or a crime scene to be of any value to me. Not quite the bonus I was looking for. Genesis, the garden, Genesis chapter 3 is a crime scene and a tragedy. Uh, The aftermath is part of our reality and our experience. And so we want to look at the consequences. I hope you've been with us message by message. You really need... Genesis 101, 102, 103, before we get to this. But here we're looking at the consequences. So turn in your Bible to Genesis chapter 3, and we're going to begin reading at verse 14. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you, more than all the cattle, and more than every beast of the field. And you'll recall that in verse 1 of this chapter, the serpent was introduced as crafty. Crafty as none of the other beasts of the field. Which is to say, unique. And in a way, of elevated stature or craft or ability as none of the other beasts of the field. Now he is being demoted because of what he's he's done. He's being cursed. He who was introduced, the word crafty is arum. Now he's cursed, arur. Kind of a play on words. On your belly you shall go, and dust shall you eat. This is, a, this is imagery of the humiliation that he is subject to, the serpent is subject to, all the days of your life. And, this is interesting, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and not just, you see, between the serpent who is being cursed and the woman 
whom he tempted, but this is kind of a dynastic enmity between the serpent and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. The, the, the same word, in fact, this word translated in this version, the New American Standard Version, bruise, this word only occurs three times in all of the Old Testament, too, right here. And the fact that even though it's a very different kind of function, you know, bruising the heel versus bruising the head, the, I think the idea is that this is an ongoing battle. This is a tooth and nail, to use another image. Uh, this is an ongoing uh, fight uh, between the serpent and the seed of the woman. That is, between all of us and the serpent. And yes, uh, I don't like snakes. I've run into more than my share. Uh, I'd love to share some of my share with you. But there's something more here than just snakes that slither and the offspring of the woman who is called later, she's finally given a name by Adam. Adam calls her, and it's translated Eve, but it means, uh, it carries the idea of the mother of all living. Well, not, wouldn't be animals, but of all humankind, of all humankind. And so there is this great struggle, this great war, uh, as it were, that is introduced here. Um, and, and these are the outcomes. This is the... This, these are the consequences. This is the wreckage of this crime scene that's being described. These, these are the consequences. And the serpent in verses 1 through 5 tempts, insinuates, sows falsehood into the thinking of the woman. It's her action, not his. But it's interesting. It occurred to me even just today that had the woman ignored him, the serpent would have had no power whatsoever. The serpent's power is somehow symbiotically tied to the action. And I think there's some sense of the ongoing battle there. And of course, in the larger perspective of the whole Bible, the sending of Jesus Christ, the cross, His resurrection, we know that there is a greater tempter, trickster, called Satan. And I think what we see here is that battleground. And it involves 
humankind. That's the point. In verse 16, to the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you shall bring forth children. Yet your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And so here, in almost a pivotal position, we have the curse against the serpent. We have these uh, ramifications. Uh, the, the enmity between the serpent and the woman is introduced under, so to speak, the curse of the serpent. But the woman certainly in view because she is the agent of all humanity, which is in, so to speak, life and death battle with the serpent. Her birth is, I mean, her birthing is uh, going to involve pain. And then it says, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. I'm going to come back to that. Then to Adam he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it, Cursed, or cursed, is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. Because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And now the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And in verses 22 through 24, there is the acknowledgement that in eating the fruit, they have gained uh, the knowledge of good and evil. They've lost their innocence, they've gained a certain culpability, and this is something which God sought to spare them, just as parents want to spare their children from suffering and danger and pain. And It's very difficult to imagine that, that loss of innocence that, uh, that at least is refreshed in our thinking when we see a young child. And... He must exclude them, drive them, banish them from the garden and from the tree of life. The death penalty, which was uh, expressly stated in, in uh, the command to Adam back in chapter 2, uh, the, the, the consequence was you shall surely die. And here, even though God spares Adam and curses the ground. You may have noticed there's only two curses. There is a curse on the serpent, but instead of Adam being cursed, the ground is cursed. And uh, so we have this, uh, this picture of uh, enmity between us and the serpent, 
we have this uh, picture of, uh, of strife and disharmony uh, between the woman and all of us, kind of federally or, you know, uh, figuratively seen in, in her as uh, her progeny. Um, there's this tension between the serpent and her, between giving of birth and between her and her husband. And then, although Adam isn't cursed, the ground is, and uh, pain and toil, sweat and suffering, everything comes hard, thorns and thistles. This is not a good scene. This is not a happy scene. This is a, a scene of things gone wrong. And, and so, uh, we're banished uh, from the garden, and the penalty of death, you shall surely die, is implied even in what is said of, uh, to Adam. Uh, you are of the dust, and you will return to it. And perhaps, perhaps, I know we have a lot of questions, and I just don't have the time to, uh, to bring them all up, maybe even some that you didn't think of, and then try to solve them, but... Uh, the tree of life, there may have been a degree of certain mortality all the time, a boundary between God and man. The eating of the fruit perhaps perpetuates man in right relationship with God within the garden. Uh, abiding and living within the boundaries of his relationship to God and to one another and now being banished uh, because in eating of the fruit. The fruit, the fruit is not poison. This isn't Snow White. That's Disney's version of the gospel. The fruit, maybe, maybe the fruit has all kinds of antioxidants. You know, maybe you could build a whole health enterprise around the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The issue is, God said, don't eat this. And when they exercise their freedom, you know, I don't, I don't picture, I mean, maybe Adam, when, uh, when Eve, she, she, she ate of the fruit. And maybe while her mouth was still full, she said, I'll do God try this. You know, maybe she was eating with her mouth full. And I don't know, maybe Adam, he took that fruit and he just watched her for a while to see what would happen. I mean, God gave him the command. He relayed it to, to his wife. It's kind of a humorous thought, huh? But if she'd started to turn blue, do you think he would have gone ahead and taken that bite? <laughs> But I share this to illustrate something here that's see much deeper than just the fruit. The temptation, the insinuation that good is better in our hands than in God's. That we should determine what is good. If you go back, you'll remember that that was very much the insinuation and that was the enticement. That you, you should determine good. Not God. You. 
that I should determine what is good. And of course, as these things filled her head, she conceived of this, uh, this whole thing because she wanted to not know evil, but know good. A good that she thought God was keeping from her and the first man. But in knowing good and evil, there was a, a desire for something that they didn't realize would come, and that is discriminating what is good and evil, and with it, culpability, shame, and guilt. And we've talked about this in the previous messages in various ways from different angles. This is really... Um, a very profound thing to contemplate. In one sense, it, 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 I struggle with the profundity of it, the depth of it, the dimension of it, because when I discriminate, when I am the determiner of good, when it's really in my hands, then what happens to the way I see God? You see, in a way, uh, if I, I wish I had more powerful word, words to put this, but in a sense, to, to believe God, to trust God, to know God, to put faith in God, all of these things, even to accept His existence, uh, all of this now becomes subject to my discrimination. It's almost as though this desire to be like God, which was part of the insinuation of the serpent. And boy, that just sounded so good. But through this, uh, this effort of testing God's truth through a tried, I'm going to try it to figure it out. You know, the testing of truth. Test and see. Tried and true. These are the ways that we operate. But in doing this, something is broken. This, this self-absorption almost becomes our curse. This, this right of discrimination puts us into a horrible position of never being able to break outside of our own egotistical, self-absorbed centeredness as people. I know that's hard to listen to. You don't think of yourself that way. But how are we to know this if we just look at one another? I mean, this is, this is our world. But if you start to put your eyes on God, all of a sudden you start to see yourself more clearly. And how arrogant and self-centered and egotistical and absorbed we are. To try and get at this a little bit more closely, because to talk about the servant, the, the war with the serpent, we could talk about that. We could talk about the toil and the pain and the suffering of existence which falls under the curse on the ground. But what I want us to look at, because I think this is really personal to us, I want us to look at the end of verse 16. 
It says there that of the woman, you yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, this seems to me to be a fairly clear picture of the way things are. Although I'm I'm always up for the desire of my wife. I mean, if she has a desire for me, that's great. I think that's good, you know. I want that. Um, But what I see here is a tension. Now, it's quite interesting. This word, desire for her husband, what does that mean? Well, I wish we could just look it up in a dictionary, and I suppose we could, but that would just be somebody else's assessment of the evidence. This word desire only occurs three times. Three times. Once in the Song of Solomon, when it talks about the desire of her betrothed for her. Once in chapter 4 of Genesis, verse 7, And this is what it says. If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. And then this reference here to desire. It seems like there's something kind of biological or kind of instinctual about this, this notion of desire. This is not the kind of, of uh, a desire that, that, you know, hey, I like that. This is, this is a drive of sorts. And the man, the word, he will rule over you. Well, this is a common word for rule in the Old Testament. Basically, what we have here is a Just a a terrible tension between the man and the woman. A dynamic tension between the man and the woman. And it may even have some male-female kind of elements to it. I don't know. But this is real life. And I think we experience this in some ways. I can't detail them all. But I thought if just for a moment we could look at marriage. You know, when you think of the institution of marriage today, um, if the institution of marriage were an animal, it would be listed for protection on the Endangered Species Act. I mean, the divorce rates are crazy. Um, I mean, it just, one of the most powerful things about, you know, the shortcomings of marriage, the, the hardships of marriage, the difficulties of marriage, is that in a political atmosphere, the failures of marriage are used to justify a non privileged status. For the notion of marriage. In other words, why should you get to have exclusive use of the word marriage? When I look at your marriage, it's such a mess. 
Why can you use the word marriage and I cannot? When you've made such a mess of it. When children are endangered by your fighting and struggles and and on and on it goes. And today, more and more cohabitate. They don't even enter into marriage. And they talk about marriage as just a piece of paper. What happened to the helper? Now, what I want to point out here is this is not the way God intended it. I guess I didn't have to say that, but let's make ourselves plain. More than any sex or hierarchical issue, this is a human issue, albeit with distinctive biological weapons. When God split the atom to create the human image of God, there were nuclear implications if the image fell into evil hands. And that is exactly what has happened. In fact, uh, just a couple of quotes here. Uh, In a multitude of overt or covert ways, we display through our fundamental femaleness or maleness the uncanny human knack to exploit each other for our own ends. Says one writer. Uh, Others to say, quote, As sexual beings, we are capable of reducing another person to an extension of ourselves. It is precisely as sexual beings that we are most vulnerable to the desire to possess another person or to reduce him or her to the object of our desire. Lawrence Kuby says, Men and women are infinitely ingenious in their ability to find new ways of being unhappy together. So let's just recapture just briefly for a moment what God intended. I want to go back just to chapter 1, verse 26. What did God say? Listen very carefully. We spent time on this. I think it was message 4, 3 or 4. If you haven't listened to that, I encourage you to go back. This is what God says. Let us, let us, Make man in our image, our likeness. I talked at some length about that. Then it goes on to say, He that is God, He, singular, created Him, that is mankind, man, Male and female. Do you remember that? Talked about that at considerable length. I just want to plant something that is, is very real here. Uh, and, and from the counsel of the whole Bible, I think uh, we can see this even more clearly. But at the time, in the message, I established it just pretty much largely based on Genesis 1. And that is, is that in this let us... Make man in our image. Uh, we, we see the plurality of God. We call this the Trinity. Father, Son, and Spirit. And there is a, in the Trinity, um, a mutuality. A mutuality. Distinct persons, but in mutuality. And there's incredible 
harmony and oneness. It is in our image, our likeness, that God creates man, male and female. In other words, I see a plurality in humanity that is, as it were, analyzed in terms of male and female, distinct and yet meant to be together. This mutual, harmonious mutuality of our image in God's image and likeness is narrated in chapter 2. At the time, I talked about the fact that the sixth day of Genesis chapter 1, in which God creates humanity, is, so to speak, amplified and looked at under a magnifying glass in chapter 2. And there, Adam's solitude, there's a, an incompleteness from a void that could not be filled by animal companionship, It could not even be filled by the presence of the solitary Adam in the garden with God. Are you following me? Thank you. I like you. Man is in isolation and can only experience completion through woman. And that's the antidote. Not just a human counterpart, but a female counterpart. Adam was fundamentally incomplete, and his essence was incomplete until she became a part of the equation. And his sense of incompleteness gave birth to the cry of joy when he was introduced to his sexual counterpart. She is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Or as uh, David Ekman said when he was with us, uh, the first poem. This mutuality... This this beautiful, harmonious relationship of distinction and yet interdependence is the likeness of God's image. And it is destroyed. How? How does it become yearning for him and ruling over her? Exercising this idea of I'm God. And you can label it whatever you want, but it, that's, that's pretty much 
the way we kind of operate in life. I don't know, maybe I talk about that because I just, I see it so much in myself. I've become, uh, I've been a connoisseur, I've become a connoisseur of my own desires to exercise autonomy in my life. I mean, it takes work to see it because you're not going to see it. Culture isn't going to point it out to you. The culture is going to elevate it. Only when you set your eyes on God do you begin to see it more clearly and more specifically when you set your eyes on Jesus Christ. What happened to the helper? Listen, this word helper, and uh, Professor, uh, my former boss, David Ekman, when he was here just two Sundays ago, he talked about this. The word helper, which is introduced in chapter 2, verse 18 and verse 20, he mentioned this. The word helper occurs 20 times in the Old Testament. How many times is it used of the woman in this creation account? Twice, I just mentioned it. Of the 20 times, 17, 17 are used to describe God as our helper. To speak of God as helper is to acknowledge God as our strength or power. For God to say, you need a helper, Adam. And for Adam to be complete, to not be in isolation, God creates a helper. This is not an assistant. This is the completer of my identity, even as I am the completer, man is the completer of her identity. In fact, David Friedman, a Semitic language specialist, said, when God creates Eve from Adam's rib, his intent is that she will be unlike the animals a power or strength to equal him. Rather than an assistant, Genesis intends us to see man and woman as complement and completion, isolated in an inferior way without one another. The... The solution is sent to us, I think, in Christ. Jesus Christ, I, I suppose if you think of his obedience to, unto the Father, he, he's been called the perfect man. He he perfectly fulfills the will of God, which makes him the perfect sacrifice. This is the message of the gospel, that God sent his one and only Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. This work of the Son, this perfect 
son. This, Paul called him the last Adam. This perfect son fulfilled the kind of relationship that a human was to experience with God the Father. But I think it's important when we look at Jesus' obedience to realize that this is a model as to how all human beings, not just a son to the Father, not just as if uh, the son's obedience to the Father was a model of how one gender, say the woman, should relate to the other uh, man. No, it doesn't matter male or female. We are to live in obedience to God. That was what was destroyed in the garden. That was the aftermath. And we ought to find in Jesus a grand illustration of the proper attitude that all Christians, female and male, should demonstrate toward one another rather than lines of authority or submission. Jesus' life calls us to mutual submission to God and one another. Indeed, Paul instructed the Ephesian believers to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. I don't know if you've heard this song. I'm, I don't listen to K-Jug. I actually ran across these lyrics on national public radio. Don't, don't hold that against me either. I'm not sure where you are on the spectrum between K-Jug and national public radio. I, I like all kinds of music, actually. I heard these words, we've been dating since high school. We never once left this town. We used to go out on the weekends and we'd drink till we drowned. But now she's acting funny. And I don't understand. I think that she's found her some other man. She left me for Jesus. And that just ain't fair. She says that he's perfect. How could I compare? She says I should find him and I'll know peace at last. If ever I find Jesus, I'm just going to drop off there. There's more in that than you even realize, you know. Jesus is the perfect man. I don't know where the time goes. Will you stand? In all of life, in our, in our relationship with a husband or a wife. But you see, that, that just... We, Adam's counterpart was a completion. And a mutuality that was thrown into relief by isolation. And we as human beings, are meant not only for, as Genesis 3 even makes clear in 
Eve being the mother of all humanity, uh, there is male and female, which were created originally for oneness, but also in all of our, we're a social being. And, and even to develop as we ought in the Lord, we can't retreat to isolation. We need to advance toward one another. But there's going to be problems in community, in society, in relationship with one another. And the solution is Jesus Christ. We all need to be kind of connoisseurs of our own egoism, not in the sense that we want to partake more of it, but that we should be able to acknowledge it and turn unto the Lord. In your marriage, in your business, in your relationships with neighbors, friends at school, in whatever situation you're in, your application this week is to turn your life over to the Lord and trust Him. And as we said a week ago, uh, a couple of times in fact, good is very plain. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. Heavenly Father, may we realize the artistry of your life, of your presence, and of your power in our lives as we return to dependence upon you instead of acting like your counterpart in independence. Father, through dependence upon you and your love, loving you and loving others, begin the restoring work in our own hearts and in our relationships, whether they be at home or at work or at school, whatever the venue, Father, may you operate in great power through us. We pray this in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, God bless you, you're dismissed. This has been a production of Grace Community Church of Visalia. For more information, go to our website at www.gccvisalia.org. Or for more sermons, go to gccvisalia.org slash podcast.